Prokopovich at East Carolina University with Civil War Talk Radio. This week on Civil War Talk Radio, we'll be chatting with Craig L. Simons, Professor of History at the United States Naval Academy, where he has taught naval history and Civil War history since 1976 and written biographies of Joe Johnston, Pat Claiborne, and Franklin Buchanan. We'll be back in a moment with Craig L. Simons. Computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words. Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Today is Craig L. Simons, teacher of history at the United States Naval Academy. Craig, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Jerry. Thank you. Good. Uh, I hope you've been well since we last uh, saw each other. I believe that was at the White House, wasn't it? Yes. I, interesting that you managed to drop that little piece of information. That was a, a fascinating evening. It was a lot of fun. It really was. That was in February of 2005, and I usually go five or ten seconds into the show before I mention it uh, because <laughs> it was such an interesting thing. I should tell the listeners uh, what it is we're talking about. In February of 2005, uh, Historian Harold Holzer and actor Sam Waterston gave a dramatic presentation at the White House, and the President and First Lady were kind enough to invite a number of people involved in uh, historical projects to attend that. Uh, uh, and a number of people who've been on Civil War Talk Radio, our guests today, uh, and past guests John Marzlak, uh, David Long, Catherine Clinton, John Y. Simon, I'm sure I'm forgetting some others. Uh, we're all in attendance at this, as, as I was. And we got to see the White House uh, uh, in a, a very uh, personal, intimate uh, opportunity. Uh, Craig, did you get to the Lincoln bedroom? I did. I had an opportunity to sit at the desk where Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, or at least so we think. And that was uh, that was a high moment. That certainly was. I, I enjoyed the chance to see that room uh, tremendously. It was, it was a rare opportunity. Uh, now, you're involved uh, as an advisory board member to the Lincoln Bicentennial Commission. Uh, 
right. which is planning the events for 2009, and that, that's how uh, I imagine how you and I and others got to go to this. I'm sure that's a lot of it. I think it says a lot about what people assume uh, the efficiency level of historians must be, that we need to plan for 2009 beginning in 2004. But, uh, but yes, that's a, that's a great opportunity to sit together with a bunch of other Lincoln scholars and talk about ways that we can acknowledge uh, Lincoln's presidency. That, that's right. And it is good that we're, we're looking ahead. Certainly you do want to take time and uh, look into the future uh, as well in, in planning this for the past. It will be interesting to see what the Bicentennial Commission comes up with. Now, I was looking over things you've written, and there's a long list of them. I noticed in 2001 you wrote uh, a history of the Battle of Gettysburg. I did. Uh, that has what, kind of what, a story behind it, actually. Uh, American Heritage uh, wanted a book uh, similar to in format and, and approach to the kind of book that Bruce Catton had done some years ago and recently updated by Jim McPherson on the Civil War, a book that focused just on Gettysburg. And initially they wanted uh, it to be co-authored by Howard Barr, a novelist whom I, I think you may have heard of. Uh, he's the author of The Black Flower and Day of Jubilo and some other things. And me. And we each, uh, Howard and I, decided independently that uh, we just don't co-author all that well. So I, I ended up doing that on my own. But it was uh, it was a lot of fun to do. And a different kind of project because, of course, it needs to be visually uh, appealing as well as uh, uh, historically accurate. So this is a, the, the lavishly illustrated type of book. Then. Absolutely. Uh, the pejorative term, I suppose, is coffee table book. But what I remember is that when I was a young teenager and, and Bruce Catton's uh, first volume came into my hands, what an impact it had on me. And as I worked on this, my goal throughout was to uh, appeal to some 15-year-old who perhaps had little or no knowledge of the Civil War and no particular interest in it either, that he would find this and, uh, and be sucked in and become a student for life. And that was my goal in writing it. I don't know if it's succeeding or not. Well, I, I, I hope so. I, uh, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to on this program who remember the, the Catton Civil War volume and those wonderful maps with the bird's eye view. Yes, those maps were wonderful. I haven't seen anything like them since. Uh, for those listeners who aren't aware, he had little tiny figures less about an eighth of an inch high, running around on these maps so that a young person could really visualize this. It wasn't the, what we do now with campaign tactical maps and show little blocks and arrows and so forth. This was actually almost as if you were in a blimp high over the battlefield. Now, the bad thing about that was he had to conflate the battlefield down to a, a page size, so it was completely out of proportion. But it, for a young person in particular, it made it very vivid, and, and I remember those maps very well. They, they they were great. You're right. Each uh, a division might only have uh, 30 of those little figures. Right, right. A, a town would have three or four buildings. Exactly. But it it did give a vivid impression like nothing else. I know I was influenced by that. I'm sure many of us were. And I, I think it's great that you worked on a project that will try to do that for the next generation because there's so much competition now with uh, the video games and other activities kids can be involved in. It's tough to grab them. Yeah, that's true. Uh, video games in particular, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that. I, I uh, have a grandson who's two, and I can envision a future for him where uh, books are, are distant and, and unusual objects. I hope that doesn't come to pass. Well, I, I hope not. I, I, their demise has been predicted uh, before, For a long time. And I, I suspect uh, and as long still as around. Yeah. You can take a book with you to the beach. You can take a book uh, uh, on a train, uh, on a plane. You, you can read a book uh, anywhere, and 
the, the warmth of the glow of the screen with the electronic uh, <laughs> devices is just not the same thing. Not the same at all. You're absolutely right. Let's talk about some of the other books uh, you've written. I mentioned in the introduction you've written biographies of several Confederate generals. Right. Uh, I had uh, a conversation with Jack Davis not too long ago here where he gave his opinion on Joseph Johnston. Now, yes, and I can imagine what that was. Jack well, and I were just at a conference last to weekend out. together, each <laughs> talking about Joseph Johnston. And we agreed to disagree a little bit, but it was all in good humor. Johnston is a very difficult person to get your hands on. Um, it, it's not a situation, well, I guess it has been for a long time a situation, where he had individuals who simply said, well, he is uh, the if not uh, unappreciated, underappreciated Confederate hero who, if left in position by Jefferson Davis in July of 1864, would have been able to secure victory for the South by simply prolonging the war and wearing out the will of the North to continue the fight. I kind of doubt that personally, uh, but I think that's one of the things that makes him controversial, that and the fact that he retreated more than he fought, so that it's possible to to blame him um, both for the South's loss, or if you're on the other side of the argument, to say, oh, the South only lost because he was let go. I suspect both of those arguments sort of inflate uh, the impact that he had on the war. But he's an interesting, difficult, and complicated individual. And the reason I took up a biography of him in the first place was because of that difficulty. It's, you can't uh, simply take one position and say, well, that's it. I've got Joe Johnston now. I've got him in the palm of my hand and I understand him. He's a very complicated individual. What kind of sources were available for that book? Well, there are some interesting sources. There's a group of letters to his wife that are in the Maryland Historical Society that I think probably better than any other particular group of letters give insight into the Joe Johnston, the private Joe Johnston. The public Joe Johnston is fairly easily graspable. Uh, but what was he really thinking when he did these things? And I think that helps me a lot uh, figure out who he was. Uh, another interesting collection, too, are the uh, letters, the correspondence that he carried on with George McClellan, of all people, in the years before the war. Now, these are interesting because, as Jack probably mentioned on your show, uh, Jack conceives of Joe Johnson as essentially the Southern McClellan. He's someone, after all, who uh, was reluctant to initiate an offensive, who quarreled with his commander-in-chief, who often believed he was outnumbered. Now, the difference, of course, being that Johnston actually was outnumbered as opposed to McClellan. But that these two men, who share so many characteristics, should have engaged in a lengthy correspondence in the 1850s is interesting by itself. And even more interesting is the fact that what they tended to talk about were these sort of pie-in-the-sky filibustering operations they were going to go on. And that's a wonderful thing to contemplate. Here's George McClellan, then, of course, still a very young officer, talking with a relatively senior officer, a full colonel in the Army, 20 years his senior, and they're sharing ideas, well, why don't we get together and organize a filibustering expedition down to South America? Good heavens. You think that ever would have got off the ground? Well, you know, sometimes a lieutenant colonel can have a disproportionate effect on history. <laughs> uh, that's, I've heard that. You never know, uh, but but that's, the idea of them corresponding is interesting. Did they correspond um, post-war? Uh, no, they didn't really, interestingly. Um, Johnston reinitiated his friendship with Robert E. Lee post-war and with a number of other uh, folks who tended to be on his side in the Battle of the Books that took place after the war. Mm -hmm. um, and he did correspond with Sherman, interestingly enough. You probably have heard the story of 
Sherman and Johnston at uh, Sherman's funeral. Well, obviously Sherman was there. It was his funeral after all. Where uh, Sherman was being buried. It was cold. It was in upstate New York, and the, it was February, and, and uh, Johnson was standing grayside with his hat off, and someone leaned forward and touched him on the shoulder and said, General, you must put on your hat. You'll catch cold. And Johnson responded rather famously, if I were lying there and he were standing here, he would not put on his hat. And he remained bareheaded through the ceremony and, of course, caught cold, which turned into pneumonia and eventually died, not perhaps directly as a result of that, but certainly indirectly as a result. And that mutual respect that Sherman and Johnston uh, affected after the war is partly a product, of course, of the idea that each man was useful to the other in terms of defending the historical position that he desired. Sherman wanted it to appear that Johnson was a great opponent because that would make his own exploits in Georgia so much more admirable. Johnston wanted to say that well, Sherman was a great commander because that's why it was impossible for me to counterattack him or to find a, a chink in his armor. So each uh, that was the correspondence uh, across the Mason-Dixon line, if you would. But McClellan kind of disappeared from uh, Johnson's Rolodex, if he had one. Did uh, Sherman and Johnson talk about the surrender as well? I would think that would be something. They didn't. They did some, but only indirectly. That that uh, was embarrassing for both of them. That first meeting at the Bennett House in North Carolina, when they came together, uh, was very uh, poignant in so many ways. The two, first of all, were alone in a room, unlike the confrontation uh, at uh, Appomattox between Lee and Grant, where there were others in the room to witness the conversation. These two men were alone, so we know, only know what they said by what they told us that they said. But pretty clearly, as soon as they were alone in that room, Sherman reached into his pocket and pulled out a telegram that he had received just that morning announcing the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So that cast a huge shadow over their subsequent discussions. And Johnston was trying to find a way to bring the war to an end, not just the fighting in his front, not just the relationship of the two armies, but the war itself. And uh, Sherman was willing to fall into that conversation, knowing what Lincoln had said about what he hoped for as an end of the war. But, of course, by the time that agreement reached Washington, the assassination of Lincoln had changed the political dynamic, and it was rejected. And they had to meet a second time. And this time, Johnston just surrendered his army. So that relationship, that conversation, that people ask me, where would you like to have been a fly on the wall? I sure would like to have heard what they said to one another in that room. Well, I can I can imagine that certainly would have been something to hear. Where Sherman is very much exceeding his authority as a military man, but had yeah, been and Johnston alive. probably was too, actually. <laughs> uh, but of course, Davis was in not so good a position to. Uh, to say, no, go back and rethink this. That's right. And had Lincoln survived, he might well have worked in some more conciliatory way with Sherman to make that agreement. Yeah, one wonders. Um, it, it, of course, brings to mind the whole question of what would Lincoln have done, which is another one of the great uh, Civil War what-ifs. Uh, I tend to be in the school that thinks that Lincoln was, at some level, more of a secret radical than many people have assumed. Uh, I think he really did want to bring about what I suppose you could call a social and cultural revolution in the South, but he wanted to do it on terms that would make it politically viable. I think that's the big difference. He was a better politician than Andrew Johnson. Almost anybody was a better politician than Andrew Johnson. Um, 
But I'm not sure he would have accepted what uh, Johnston and Sherman signed in the Bennett House. It, it gave so much more authority. It recreated the state governments and so forth. And I think Lincoln wanted to create just a few, if not hurdles, at least speed bumps on the road to readmission to make sure that the freedmen in particular were protected in their civil rights. But we'll never know, as you say. No, we, we, we won't. I, I would agree with you very much on, on that view of Lincoln as not... Uh, not the traditional view that Lincoln the Magnanimous would have uh, let the South in gently and there'd be no Reconstruction. Uh, among other things, it overlooks the fact that Lincoln was a Republican, whereas Johnson was a Democrat, and Lincoln would have had a strong vested interest in building a viable Republican Party in the South, which would Absolutely. be protecting the, the freedmen's right to vote. All true. And Johnson, and, and Johnson took so much baggage with him into that yeah. difficulty. I mean, his whole upbringing as uh, someone of the, well, almost of the mudsill class, if you would, who was uh, furiously defiant at the aristocracy and then sort of allowed himself to be sweet-talked into being their, their champion. Uh, but we're sort of we're, we're sticking our toe into psychohistory now, aren't we? We should probably back It's hard to know what they think. <laughs> but we'll try anyway. We'll go deeper into these waters and others in a few minutes when we come back with Craig L. Simons on Civil War Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. 